1: I am sure many grandparents are scratching their heads wondering what the heck is going on with the newly announced arrangements for school kids, especially young ones. Now, at the height of the pandemic, most grandparents couldn't even see their grandchildren, not to mention their children. And now many many, many are bubbled with them and it is a joy and a blessing, but I dare say most older people are sticking to the rules, limiting their contacts. But what will happen when those children go back to school? And for the young ones, they're going back unmasked with 30 kids in a class, which, of course, will bring the dangers of transmission. Now, I would like to hear from some grandparents and others who who are wondering what is going to happen when these changes, when school goes back in the fall? 416 740 toll free, one 740 The province, of course, is telling us it's going to be fine. They're doing their best and they have... The best precautions in the country, uh, it sounds like a little hyperbole to me, frankly. I would like to bring in Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, who is a family physician, and we have David with us, who is not only a doting grandparent but your daughter is a teacher so <laughs> so you're getting it that, from all sides make, make that
2: publicly known but yes she is yeah That's
1: okay so uh, let's start with dr gorfinkel hello iris well hello there libby hi iris hi david Okay, so, uh, uh, oh, and uh, we are also uh, a little early. We also have Dr. Gerald Evans, who is the chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Kingston General Hospital. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you?
3: Good, thank
1: you. Okay, so let's start with Dr. Evans. Uh, So are you comfortable with these arrangements for school kids, and what about their grandparents?
3: Yeah, these are the, uh, I call them the $64,000 questions. Uh, I mean, comfort is a, is a, is a relative thing. Um, obviously my view of this is from a, a medical point of view and looking at the safety of, uh, individuals who would be in school, whether they be the children or the adolescent and youth that are attending school or teachers and other adults that are, uh, in that environment. And I think what, what we have here really is, um, a juxtaposition of two uh, issues. One is the safety of uh, restarting schools in the setting of a pandemic, and the other one is recognizing the uh, significant impact that not being at school has on children in terms of their uh, ongoing development as humans and uh, and and all those other learning things. And those are. Uh, That intersection of those two things is really where the challenge lies. Uh, One of my very learned colleagues in Toronto has actually called it a wicked problem, and apparently there's a whole uh, literature around what do you do with wicked problems because they're very difficult to solve, uh, and uh, it's really looking at that balance right now.
1: Iris, uh,
4: what are you telling your patients? Well, we've talked about how humbling this whole experience has been, and I have to echo Dr. Evans considerations. There's no question kids gain tremendously socially. The stability, their physical well-being, they get meals. It allows parents and guardians to re-enter the workforce. Hugely important that schools reopen. But it will have an impact on the social bubble. And in my view, we need to open the social bubble in phases. If kids are to be exposed to hundreds of other kids, teachers, bus drivers, janitors, We need to make sure that those who are at highest risk are completely away from them. We have to think of it in terms of reopening and micro phases. So, for example, if you're used to being with your grandchild now and you're at high risk, it makes a lot of sense to keep totally away from that grandchild. That person is excluded from the immediate social circle We can do Zoom. We can do phone calls. We can be together, but not physically for the first two to four weeks just to keep our ear to the ground, just so that we know what's happening in that space. We've been humbled by what's happened in Israel. When Israel reopened the schools, they saw a huge resurgence of cases. And it's very difficult to know exactly what's around the corner. It's just too hard to try to quantify that and too risky, not To make sure we reopen in phases.
1: Okay, well, so you're saying everybody who's at high risk, and you know, um, here's my thing, and and I just uh, wrote a column on this in Zoomer magazine, Mm -hmm. so high risk has, has completely been defined by age without regard to the person that you're talking to, and suddenly, uh, elderly, I've seen 60 year olds described as elderly, which, which annoys the heck out of me, to be honest. So, uh, is it, you know, uh, is it everybody who is beyond a certain age, or is it if you, you have, uh, complex conditions, or, or if you're particularly susceptible that you now shut yourself off fr- from your, family. I mean, David, your grandson is starting to go to school. Are are you going to, you know, stop seeing him?
2: No, uh, but I like what uh, Iris just said, because if there were specific steps that I knew about. So, for example, in my case, we FaceTime, we visit, we have social distancing because it's summer, he can play outdoors, I can be the requisite number of feet away and, and see him. Uh, Now he goes, he's starting kindergarten, he'll be in school, he's already in uh, summer camp in a day camp. The question then becomes, if I hear of something, so to put into action what Irish just said, what do I do? Do I need to hear of something? What if some other kid at the school got affected? What my daughter is worrying about is really the management of the schools, because what if a sibling Someone in their class got infected and the main kid isn't infected. There's so many permutations and combinations that have not been laid out, frankly, with the specificity that uh, Dr. Gorfinkel just did. I think that's what we need. If this, then do this. If this, then do that. It won't be that tough if that's the way we do it. But if it's just left, you know, in a vacuum, you're going to get a mess.
1: Dr. Gorfinkel, are are you okay with that? That only in certain circumstances, if if David hears there's a problem, will he stop seeing uh, his grandchild, or or the do you think? The
4: problem with that is this: is that if we wait till we hear a problem, the horse is already out of the barn. There's a problem. So my thinking would be more like: yes, we can consider the rates of infection within a community because not all communities have the same risk. If the numbers are really at zero, that's one sign. But that's not the case for Toronto. That's not the case for several major cities. And what Israel teaches, Israel went from being the darling of the world in May, where everything they seemed to do seemed to turn to gold. It was just the right thing. And what happened? There was a huge outbreak in one school, which rapidly spread to other schools. And so this is a very humbling... There was also a lot of partying. No. Yeah, I I
2: mean, I a, by the way, I should have made clear I'm already social. Math. I'm already social distancing with my grandson. Just okay, you're care. not bubbled. I'm not, you're not hugging I'm not him. Hugging him now, so I would keep seeing him at that distance. Right, but so, until I'm told, wait a minute, it's even worse now. There's some new thing happened. So okay. but I agree with the doctor here. I'm not. I'm not contradicting them.
1: So, Doctor Evans. Um, mm-hmm. When, when kids go back to school, what do you say? Do all grandparents over a certain age stop seeing their, their grandkids, or what?
3: No, I don't think so. And, and uh, let me just uh, let me put a couple of things into perspective, and Dr. Garfinkel was just mentioning Israel. So there have been bad experiences in some countries. Uh, Israel is an example, also in New Zealand and France. But then I can tell you that the experience in the Netherlands, uh, in primary schools, in Denmark... Finland, Belgium, Austria, Taiwan, and Singapore is that uh, those things uh, can be safely put into place without things. So that's one of the problems we're facing is we're seeing experiences around the world that differ. And so the question is, can we learn from what was done in some jurisdictions where things went badly uh, and learn from jurisdictions where things went well and look to aim and put in place the things that work well in those countries where they haven't experienced it? There's also a bit of a differential that's occurring we know on a biological level uh, between a young students who attend elementary school and older students youth and adolescents who are in high school and that's related a little bit to social circumstances but maybe related a little bit somewhat to the biology of, of how that how that disease actually gets uh, transmitted around so there's lots and lots of uh, different aspects to this uh, that need to be put into place I think one of the problems that I would Um, mentioned, and it just relates to the question you asked me, is the problem is if you react to what's called a downstream signal, so all of a sudden rates of, of infections are rising in a particular uh, region or jurisdiction, that may be too late to put into actions like uh, increasing physical distancing or social distancing in, me- in general uh, between uh, older individuals in a family and a child at school. What we need to have are what are called upstream signals, so things that we can spot well ahead of time so that, you know, creating more social distancing between older family members, and children uh, and adolescents who are attending school so as to reduce the likelihood of that transmission happening. The upstream signals are still a little bit um, uh, sort of in flux, uh, some of the ones we look at epidemiologically are the rate of rise of new cases per 100,000 population over a period of time. And so that's the kind of thing that we have to look for. But then we need good data, and we need good analysis, and we need uh, transparent, quick reporting of that data so those decisions can be made.
4: Unfortunately, we have to look forward and say, okay, what is our best guess at this point? All of your points are really well taken. There's no question we need excellent buy-in, both from the schools and from the kids, to be adherent to wearing masks. Hopefully, they will be. Hopefully, they'll have creativity projects and rewards programs and teach public health in each of the schools and make that a priority. But we have to make our best guess now that when these kids go back to school, what's going to happen with their grandparents? those with chronic conditions who are genuinely at high risk. We simply do not have the hospital beds nor the ICU capacity to overwhelm our system. So I would suggest that just until we know the numbers, play it safe, two to four weeks, no contact with high-risk individuals with kids, keep your ear to the ground. We'll measure it, and we can open in micro phases the social bubble the same way we're doing it in the macro phases.
3: Yeah, and I don't disagree with that at all. I think that is a reason thing. And, you know, the models are, that are being looked at are basically three types. One is full opening, one is no opening, and one is a hybrid model. But the phasing, is it could be very important. But I would underscore that as long as community prevalence is kept low, this is the key factor. If your community prevalence remains low, most of the places where it's been successful in school opening uh, has been because of that one specific factor. As soon as community prevalence rises, it doesn't matter really what you do, you're going to have entry of the virus into those places, whether they be schools or long-term care facilities.
1: Okay, let's, uh, let's take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, uh,
3: here's
5: the problem with the, um, the the teachers and specifically the teachers' unions of um, want uh, the class size is no more than fifteen kids in a class. Is that not true?
1: Um. Yeah, that is that oh. is true, but that's not happening. Uh, at least not in the lower grades. So not in Toronto
5: because there's no classrooms to spare.
1: Yeah, Ron, are are you a grandparent?
5: No, but I'm a school bus driver in Guelph, Wellington, and the protocols are putting in there for the bus drivers to have uh, shields or masks and sanitize the bus after every run. But I'm, I'm more concerned about the, um, the fact that they're advocating for, you know, smaller class sizes, but I know in, out here, they've already maximized the number of portables. They're already short on classes. So in, t- in the TDSB, I can't imagine where they're going to have any spare classes how many, kid, how many down.
1: kids do you have on your bus? Uh, for me,
5: it's going to be difficult because I carry probably 60 kids. So, In one bus?
1: Just a minute. In one bus? Oh, yeah. Uh, that that doesn't sound very good. And, and have there been any talks about cutting down the number of kids at a time? Well, what they're going to end up doing in my case, I've got the, the time
5: to uh, split the route up. Um, it, I don't have to travel for you know twenty kilometers or fifteen kilometers, so I'll end up picking up part of the route, drop them off at the school, and then go back and get the other part of the route that I would normally carry all on one bus.
1: Well, yeah, that wow. that still sounds like thirty, uh, Ron. I'm, I'm I'm afraid you've alerted us to something we haven't <laughs> even topic, thought of. Yeah. Thank you very much for your call. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. The whole thing has raised a lot of questions, though. You know, right now we're bubbled. We only have a small number of people that we can see and hug. And uh, suddenly, uh, you know, that includes grandkids for a lot of people. And then suddenly they're going to go to school with 30 other kids and a teacher. And we just heard from the bus driver who hauls 60 kids <laughs> <laughs> at a time. So, I mean, really? Uh, how is this all going to be managed? I'm going to take a call from Darko in Etobicoke. Hi, Darko.
0: Hi. Uh, yeah, I see I, I that we kind of operate in two
3: parallel worlds. We've had transit open the whole time. Like, if schools are going to be a big spreader, then this is the massive problem that we had with open transit, you know, people riding in cabs. You know, uh, what's the difference between school and all these other... Places where people sort of meet and gather with complete strangers.
1: Well, I will. I will give you a short answer to that. Um, the transit now is socially distanced. It's very hard to keep kids socially distanced, and they're not all wearing masks for yeah. for little kids. That so that's that's kind of. Uh, I'm gonna let. I mean, you. I
3: watch buses. People are side by side. I mean, I drive by them a lot. I mean, you know, I, I don't see this that they're six feet apart. You know, you're in a cab, uh, you know, uh, my uh, neighbor across the road, Nicholas,
4: goes to a high school up the road. But he hasn't been there since mid-March, obviously. But he's worked at no frills the whole time. You know, Darko, your, your point is so well taken, actually. You're right. Transit is, but it's a miniature of what's going on in schools. What's going on in schools is you have one child who's now exposed to literally hundreds of people and for prolonged periods of time. That's the difference. And we also don't know exactly what the impact will be as the weather gets colder. We're not gonna we're not sure about the adherence rate, okay. like how many kids are actually gonna wear the masks. There's a lot there's too many unknowns. That's the problem. Okay, well I
1: I you know, I, uh yeah. Uh Doctor Evans, anything you wanna add to that?
3: Yes, yeah, so Dr. is uh, uh, touching on a, what's really important, and I think people need to understand, the probability of transmission is not simply a black-and-white issue. It is related quite simply to time of exposure, the intensity of the exposure, and the intensity can be related to contamination in the environment. So going on a subway car or a bus for 15 or 20 minutes with a mask on is a lot lower risk than going into a school for six to eight hours where the environment could be heavily contaminated. Remember too, in addition to the bus driver who called in, custodial staff at these schools are going to be given tremendous responsibility to try and keep that area clean. So all of these factors come into play when you're looking at the probability of transmission. So in fact, What's interesting is some of the observations that are coming, and this is just, these are just observations, is that public transit, as an example, seems to be potentially a little less risky. Now, that may be confounded by the fact that there's less traffic and that people are taking a lot of measures to prevent transmission, including wearing masks and maintaining some distance issues. So, you know, that probability issue is a big one, and I think people need to understand it. That's why schools are such a wicked problem because there are other factors that are coming into play. And children are very different from adults in terms of environmental contamination, the kinds of routes of transmission that may occur. And and so that really just compounds uh, how we approach this and how we approach it as as, uh, reasonably as we can. And there's still lots and lots of data Mm -hmm. and information coming in that's going to help inform what we do. But I just
2: um, can I
1: just uh, I I, I just wanted ahead. to ask okay. you something before. Yeah, go, please. So what are some of the other things that your daughter is worried about?
2: Well, well talking about the wicked problem. So number 1 is the exposure of the kids to each other. Number 2 is siblings within a family. Child A is in grade two. Child B is in grade five. Grade five is meeting a whole other range of people. So your multiplier effect becomes huge. Second of all, don't imagine that the custodial resources are even remotely adequate. This is not a knock at the janitor's union or anything, but just don't nobody should be under any illusion. well they
1: yesterday didn't they yeah. what was it another five million bucks <laughs> for for cleaning schools. Yeah. I, do I so, have that number right? Yes,
2: yeah, so they're they're scrambling on that as well. Um, but I think it's really the compounding effect of now these kids are but i want but I want to go back to uh, something that Dr. Gorfinkel said I don't know. What we mean by don't see the grand because I don't I didn't interpret this as a grandfather that because my grandson is suddenly going to school that means my visits to him all all rules are out the window now and it can be back to normal I interpret that he can go to school I still have to be careful so I'm not sure that all of the grandparents are automatically going to be jettisoning uh face masks or social distancing. I'm not sure that we've interpreted that as meaning the thing is over.
1: Well yeah, except I I'm sure, you know, you maintain distancing which is good. So I think that, you know, if I'm taking what Ira said at the beginning, for people at high risk, go back to Zoom, uh as opposed to in person and uh you know, I'm sure there are a lot of grandparents who are bubbled with their grandchildren yes, and who are, who are physically close to them. And maybe- Those
4: social bubbles need to be redefined for high-risk patients and also in which the rate of infection in the community is high. I'm not making a blanket statement for absolutely everybody, and I'm sure there are healthy 60-year-olds who probably don't fall into high-risk categories. But let's take a look at who's really dying it would definitely be a mistake to bring a child who's back in school in any long-term care institution. That, to me, is ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. That should okay, not we happen. agree. Okay, so those who are at really high risk at home say they're obese, have metabolic syndrome, they're smokers, they have pre-existing lung or heart conditions, they have autoimmune conditions, they have had a history of cancers. These are individuals who should not have physical contact with children who are now returning to school. So let's be really you know, very open about who that is. It's not necessarily absolutely everybody. It's not necessarily true for communities with really low, super low prevalences. But let's not delude ourselves. We do not know what's going to happen when all the children go back to school. We do know that we don't have the resources to support small classes. We don't have the resources to ensure that every single child is wearing a mask all the time, nor can we assume that desks will be six feet apart. And we've heard from that bus driver, my goodness. They've got at least 30 kids coming on that bus route, and they're on there for who knows how long. Okay. Well, that's I just, a microcosm of what's going on.
1: Iris, I have lost track of the time. <laughs> <I'm so laughs> this sorry. has been a really interesting conversation, and I think we're going to have to revisit it. And I'm out of time, so thank you so much, Dr. Gerald Evans, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, and David Kravitz. Thank you. Free for all Friday is coming up tomorrow. So people, if you couldn't get through or if you have something more to say about this and whatever else happens between now and then, we're taking your calls. You can talk about whatever you want to talk about. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.